Welcome to a very special episode of Monster Crush, a podcast that's a little spooky, always sexy, and surprisingly educational. This week, we dare to power through the abject and find kin in all the right places. I'm Heavenly, and I'm joined by the very patient and always down to clown, Derek. Oh, hi, Heavenly. That's the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. (laughs) Always patient and down to clown. Put that on my headstone. (laughs) How are you, Derek? I'm doing well. I'm uh, worried at the language used in our intro, such as power through, patient. It's fine. This is going to be great. Well, this is our 50th episode. It is. Happy 50. Happy 50. We've made it halfway to our centennial. Centennial? 100? Yes. Is this yes, our bicentennial? Is this, is this our bicentennial? That's 200. Oh. Or? <laughs> it's whatever <laughs> half is in Latin. <laughs> uh, well, okay, but that doesn't make any sense because bi-weekly could both be every two weeks or twice a week. So why can't or bicentennial? twice a week, I know. Why can't, yeah. why can't bicentennial be half, half or double? Uh, you know what? You make a very valid point. Now I'm wondering if Bicentennial Man, that wonderful Robin Williams vehicle, was about a robot that lived 200 years or only 50 years. And I don't remember because that movie wasn't particularly memorable. So here we are. <laughs> here we are. No, I'm sorry. Happy, happy 50. I, I do feel like the weird stepdad of Monster Crush where I came in at like episode 26. I was like, hey there, slugger. You want to go outside and uh, <laughs> chit chat about cryptids? For our next for our next fifty, our hundred our hundredth, you will be like a full fully fleshed father. That's how it works. <laughs> well, for our fiftieth episode, I uh, was planning something kind of weird and special, and then an opportunity presented itself to me, and that opportunity was a compulsory assignment for one of the classes that I'm taking where I mm-hmm. needed to do a uh, what is known as a praxis project on a feminist scholar. And the professor who is listening to this and is going to learn more about me than they probably ever wanted to know. I'm so excited uh-huh. to work with them one-on-one next term after they listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> in, my, in my journey as a scholar. The professor gave us a couple of options. We could do a zine, which I cannot do because I have no artistic skills. Mm. We could write a paper, which I didn't want to do because I already write so many papers. Uh, Or we could do a a podcast. And I thought, I do a podcast all of the time. I literally do this anyway. (laughs) This is something that I I have the equipment for. I have my fancy microphone. I have my Ableton Live that I stole from my ex-boyfriend. And I have Richard, who edits everything for me. So I really, I have everything that I need to do this project. All the tools. Thank you, Richard. (laughs) And I thought, well, who could I have as a guest on this episode? And, And as I thought about this theoretical episode that would be about a feminist scholar, I thought, well, maybe this could be a way for me to really start to practice my theory, mm-hmm. which is which I want to be some merging of what I do for fun, which is talking about smooching monsters, and what I want to do academically, which is talk about smooching monsters, but maybe like a little more elevated. Monster fucking as practice. Praxis. Monster yeah. fucking as praxis. Yeah. And I was inspired by a 
article in the Studies in the Fantastic, number seven, their special issue, No Room in Hell, which was all about zombie narratives. And they have an article in here by Genevieve Newman titled Fungal Zombies and Tentacular Thinking, the phonic mother in the game, The Last of Us. And in this article, they merge Donna Haraway's uh, phonic time frame and cross-species mm-hmm. kin-making with the fungal zombies in The Last of Us. And that was really mm-hmm. my jumping point for what this episode and my project would be about. It's a two-in-one. It's our big 50. We're going to talk about fucking some really weird monsters. But before that, <laughs> we're going to get into some really weird theory. Perfect. Lovely. Hey, listeners, this is going to be a lot. <laughs> it's a, it's okay. F- first of all, to address one thing, I do appreciate that when you did have to talk about feminist theory, you thought, you know what, who's better than my <laughs> cis hetero white male <laughs> friend with a beard, Derek? Uh, hey, I'm happy to go along for this ride. I did do a little bit of my homework. It was not easy homework. I will say that. Um, I, I, I did assign Derek some homework for this this podcast, not too much homework, because I wanted to walk you through the text that we'll be working with m- most prominently, which is staying with the trouble. But I did request that you read the Cyborg Manifesto. I did. And to to say that I read it would be true. To say that I understood <laughs> it would be... that That's still up for debate at this point. Um, I respect Donna Haraway very much for her um, unique way of phrasing things. And uh, I am st- my brain is still kind of ruminating on that. I watched several YouTube videos to try to get other people to explain it to me, and even they were like, "I don't, I don't know, man. Just this is what she was going for, I think." So <laughs> I respect her. Yeah, and also, I've never played The Last of Us. Uh, to to get to that point, have have you? I'm I'm aware uh, of the. I okay. love the yeah. I love The Last of Us. Um, the Last of Us villains are zombies. Well, actually, in The Last of Us, the villain might be us but the, people, yeah. <laughs> it might it might be what we've done to the world but the villain are these zombies that are um they're they're fungal zombies where they're infected by a parasite that makes them kind of bloom into these like mushroom plant yeah it, it's based off of that hybrid. fungus that that does that to ants like the zombie exactly yeah, yes. I, I remember the cult clickers. That's like I don't play a lot of games, but I am like in that sphere enough that I absorb that pop culture knowledge enough. Like I know how The Last of Us ends, even though I've never played a single second of it. So I, I'm I'm aware. I've seen them. They're very unsettling, especially with like the split lip mushroom head. It's, yes. Yeah. It's yeah. a whole whole ordeal. Yeah. And these fungal zombies also feature in um, Mr. Carey's the. Girl with all the gifts, which was made into a movie. Those oh, are also yeah, yeah. those are also zombies that use directly the parasite that infects ants. And for those who aren't familiar, I guess I I didn't know we were going to talk about this much, so I didn't I didn't look it up. I'm forgetting the name of the of the parasite, but it basically infects ants and it makes them crawl to the top of a leaf stalk, and then they kind of lock themselves in place on the top of this leaf stalk. They like do a sort of pseudo rigor mortis. They die, and then their body explodes with this fungal growth, which then like billows nicely in the wind because they're right on top of a nice bendy stalk of grass. And then the fungal little seeds go forth and they infect other ants and that's how they propagate their life. It's pretty horrible. It is called uh, Ophiocordyceps unilateralis. Yes. 
Mm-hmm. That. That, yeah, that. I, I don't know why you couldn't remember a Fia cordyliceps unilateris. I, I think mean, it's just I think it's abbreviated as as a corpse. I think is how it's. Am I correct? I'm that's, that's how the kids corpse. refer to it. Yeah, that's what the kids call it. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the kids. No cap. Yeah. So, so I'm for, thirty. I'm thirty one. I just learned no cap. Please, <laughs> I'm going. I'm going to ruin that for you. <laughs> Derek just downloaded TikTok. <laughs> did <laughs> well for the casual listener we will be talking about monsters so don't worry but mm-hmm. it will come after a lot of other things so this may not be your favorite episode but I, ho- I this will be a very informative episode i hope where i'm attempting to merge academic theory with the praxis that we in engage in every week on this podcast Mm-hmm. which is smooching monsters, which is loving monsters, which is powering through the horror of the <laughs> abject to find something beautiful. Learning to love the horror. You know, uh, we always have to learn something. We are surprisingly educational, as our, our intro would suggest. You gotta you gotta eat your broccoli before you get your ice cream. You gotta mm. learn something before you smooch those monsters. Let's learn so something. Let's, let's learn something. And Derek, I encourage you as we power through the texts that I'm going to be working with to, to stop me and ask any question that comes to mind. So okay, this yeah, is not, I am, this, I'm not going to be talking, just reading off of a script. If you have any questions, if something's not making sense to you, or if you're making connections on your own, let's talk about it. Let's, let's go back and forth about this. I want this to be educational and fun and sexy. Wow, this is the best class I've ever been part of. I do also want to say, I thrive in a classroom setting. I will be taking notes. This is like, this is a dream for me. Let's do this. Okay. We will get to the Cyborg Manifesto where you and I can talk about it briefly. It is very important to the body of her work. She does mm-hmm. uh, diverge from it slightly in Staying with the Trouble, which we will talk about. But first, who is Donna Haraway? Donna J. Haraway. Uh, Donna Haraway was born September 6th, 1944 in Denver, Colorado. Her father, Frank, is actually a well-loved sports writer who worked for the Denver Post for over 30 years. And he was actually inducted into the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame in 1994. Okay. Okay. uh, It seems like, from what I've read, a jump in in writing, but... (laughs) Well, we can, I mean, her father inspired her love of writing for sure. They would often talk at the dinner table about words and their love of them and all the different ways they can be used and put together to form stories and build connections and, you know, bring people together through reading. I absolutely appreciate that. I just imagine her dad was like, yeah, you know, this, this picture really knocked it out of the park, probably a more floral language. And then I, there is a sentence from the cyborg manifesto that sticks with me, which is, um, and modern warfare is a cyborg orgy. <laughs> uh, well, I, I mean, I think Haraway might have gotten her kind of flowery language that is really unusual for theory. The, the way that she writes is not the way that a lot of theorists write, which is she, she does... Uh, utilize and wield very long sentences <laughs> that <laughs> kind of uh, put together a bunch of different metaphors, and she creates these weird 
one might say orgy of words <laughs> and language. <laughs> <laughs> one would. She might. She might. That might be something she says herself. Uh, I don't know much about her mother. It looks like her mother died when she was 16 of a heart attack. Uh-huh. Her mother died when Donna was 16. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Of, of a heart attack. But her mother came from a large Irish Catholic family. And even though Haraway herself is no longer religious, she does note that Catholicism played a huge role in her upbringing and in parts of her theory as well. Now, she is a giant nerd. Uh, at Colorado College, where she went for her undergrad, she majored in zoology, philosophy, and English. Wow, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. After her undergraduate, she studied evolutionary philosophy and theology in Paris. And in 1972, she completed her PhD in biology at Yale. That that all... (laughs) This is all just... This tracks very well, where it's just... Evolutionary philosophy is something to me that sounds like, yeah, I made up my own major. I'm, I'm definitely going to get a job <laughs> after college. I'm studying evolutionary philosophy. Evolutionary what philosophy a- and evolutionary theology. And, oh. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't know what that, I don't know what that is. I don't understand what evolutionary theology is. I think that has to, I mean, that one makes more sense to me, I guess they both make sense in a an abstract sort of way because evolutionary theology would be the evolution of religion. So it would be the you'd probably study the transition in in like the very microscopic sense of the transition from the early church to the modern church. You know, mm. the, probably the especially in in the Catholic Church, if that's what she was focusing on, the way that it intermixed with different cultures and religions as it changed the 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 different you know stages of the Vatican. That makes sense to me. I guess philosophy too, because philosophy or yeah, philosophy does have uh, evolutionary stages to it based on what philosophers are building off of others. I can see where she's going with it. It also does seem I'm gonna use this word and it's not a nice one, and I don't mean it to be mean, but it does seem exhausting. <laughs> well, some might use that word to describe her writing and her theory. So I, I guess felt that- tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna lie, I I took a nap at least three points in reading the the book. Yeah, there was a point where I just set it down and went, I'm sleepy. (laughs) She is currently a professor in the History of Consciousness Department at UC Santa Cruz. She has previously taught at University of Hawaii and John Hopkins, and she has received the J.D. Bernal Award, which is the highest honor given by the Society for Social Studies of Science. That's, wow, impressive. She's an impressive lady, for sure. She, she, has she is. A, I absolutely she, get that from her. Yeah. She has a highly interdisciplinary approach, which is very unique and not something that you see in, in a lot of fields of theory where she really doesn't satisfy herself with looking for answers in one school of thought. She does want to know what is the connection between all the different ways that we think about, theorize, and understand our relations in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it is that she does not have a singular view on things. And that is that is how disciplines grow and evolve is, is new information from exterior sources. I absolutely do re- respect. I, I will say the denseness of her writing could only be done by someone who knows what they're talking about. It, it wasn't intentionally like obfuscational language. It was informative. But it was just like, it was like getting through a... a 
jungle or a grasslands. It just felt like I was <laughs> trying to hack away with a machete and be like, well, I don't need that word, but that word seems important. You know, it's interesting that you say it doesn't feel like she's purposefully dense because, as I mentioned, Haraway inspires a lot of feeling. And the biggest critique of her work is that she is loosely scientific, purposefully vague, and needlessly opaque. I think, okay, so what I got a lot from reading the Cyborg Manifesto was it, it was a focus on irony. Mm. I, I think a yes. lot of yeah. yes, she she has a lot of humor in her writing that comes through with really sharp sarcasm and irony. Yes, so I don't think that she's purposefully obfuscational in the sense of like, oh, this is going to be hard to read just so that I sound academic. I think it was done in a sense of of irony of her kind of turning that form of writing on its head and saying, you need you need to get to my message. It's there. And also, mm. it's it's weird. Let's do this. Yeah, I, I also wonder if everyone who listens to this, Derek, you will also know this as well. I don't understand math. I'm not good at it. I've never, I've never, I've never been able to excel or even like barely function when numbers are involved. And mm -hmm. I remember I had this math professor when he kept trying to explain things to me, and I could tell that he was so smart. And he understood math so well, it mm -hmm. was agonizing for him to try and explain to me, a total idiot, how numbers can be added together. And I get that sense from Haraway as well, that she's incredibly intelligent and she has a lot of big ideas and she thinks about things in very abstract and yet far-reaching ways, that it's hard for her to lessen those ideas. And I don't mean lessen, like make them for stupid people. It's hard for her to, to soften what she's thinking. I think that's uh, she, fair. Yeah. I imagine that she speaks exactly how she writes. Oh yeah. I can see that. I can see that for sure. So whereas some of us, when we're writing, especially in academia, especially theory, where we kind of like put on our scholarly hat and we, we, we write in a way that we wouldn't normally inflect in our our conversations with people, I imagine in having watched talks with her that even casually at the brunch table, she sounds like what she's writing. Yeah, I absolutely picked that up just from her choices of punctuation. <laughs> Ooh, she loves the comma. Period. I don't know her. <laughs> it is, how, how long does the sentence run? Two paragraphs? That's <laughs> short. Works for me. This is all one idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had I've had um, people in my life describe themselves as not a math gay, and I, I very much think that maybe that uh, that might apply to you as yeah. well. I don't yeah. I don't know why we need it. I you we experienced it this morning <laughs> when I texted you and said, I'll see you at eleven PST two CST, and you were like one CST, and I realized that in my in my numberings, I had skipped the number 12. I went like 11, <laughs> 1, 2. <laughs> yeah. Completely I, also, I appreciate skipping my own time zone, considering I'm Eastern. So you... I know. I always, just, for, I always forget time that Time map is hard. I always forget 
where the fuck Ohio is. If I'm being on, if I'm just being honest with you, I know, I know that you live in Ohio and I know that you were there and that holds a really special place in my heart. If you uh-huh. put a gun to my head and told me to point within like three or four states buffer zone where Ohio is, I don't think I could do it. I don't think it's- I could. Okay, it's just south of the Great Lakes. I don't, it's, know, what that, I don't know what that means. South? I don't understand. <laughs> Behind okay, me. so now, now we're getting into direction. No Am spatial awareness I'm whatsoever. <laughs> North is whatever direction I'm facing, and I refuse That's to learn not, any no. better. <laughs> this compass is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Well, okay, back to Hawaii. I need to go to Canada. Hanley, that's the Pacific Ocean. No, nah, I'm facing it. It's north. I know Canada is north, okay? It's... Shut up. <laughs> At the very least, I think very few people can say the way that Haraway can say people in so many different fields of study are totally at odds <laughs> with her work. She's loved and hated by primatologists, biologists, philosophers, feminists, historians, graduate students at the Pacific Northwest College of Arts, anyone <laughs> in the last few weeks who's asked me what I've been working on and has basically had to listen to my pitch for this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, she has made lots of friends, lots of enemies, some frenemies, too. I I put myself in that third category. All of this would be oddkin to her, which we will get to. Uh Uh-huh. She doesn't need your friendship. She doesn't need your friendship. She doesn't. She does not require it. (laughs) Let's talk about the Cyborg Manifesto. So this was written in 1985, and it is a pivotal text in feminist post-humanist theory. Mm-hmm. Derek, give me give me the, the Cyborg Manifesto as you understood it. Oh, fuck. Okay. So the way that I understood it is when she uses the word cyborg, it is, it's weird even for the time when she was writing in the mid-80s because she uses the term cyborg as any type of organism which utilizes any type of non-organism in its efficient structure. So I, mm-hmm. I understand that she's trying to break down the barriers between human and animal and also human and machine mm-hmm. and trying to essentially negate um, gender, ethnicity, and almost even species to a point and yes. unifying them all by saying like, even the idea of if you wear glasses, you are a, a form of cyborg. If you utilize a hammer, any type of tools, any type of non-organic thing that is not part of you, uh, it is it is a cyborg-esque way of life that, that we as humans have gotten to the point of our existence where cyborgism is essential to our very survival. And she kind of takes that a step further and says, because we are getting further away, this transhumanism, this post-humanism, we are stepping away from the organic sense of life. Uh, we should be stepping one step further and trying to erase the the barriers of identity which were set in place by uh male dominated um capitalist structures basically saying that these these sections these boxes this this tribalism that we've been forced into has all been created by this overarching structure which benefits from itself and no one else does and that we should shed off these these shackles of identity and all kind of identify together that only then we can move forward as a singular entity to become the cyborg 
I went to a fugue state just now. I don't know what damn, I just said. Damn, <laughs> that was really fucking impressive. Okay, I hope that was. I'm going to listen back to that. <laughs> that was that was really that was really well said and well done. Thanks. For someone who like spent the first twenty minutes of this being like, I didn't understand anything. I was so confused. I think you just did actually a really amazing job summing up what is an incredibly dense piece of text that has been read by generations of students. Hey, thanks. Hey, what's your professor's name? Can I get an A? Can I get <laughs> So you're right. Okay, the cyborg. It's a man. It's most literally man and machine combined and working together. But what it really represents for Haraway and why it's important is it's a rejection, rejection of binaries. So that includes the self versus the other, culture versus nature, civilized versus primitive, man versus woman. And she believes that these binaries are Western concepts that stem from colonization and imperialism and the need Mm -hmm. to classify the other in relation to the self. And the self, because we constantly need to relate to others as they relate to ourselves, the self in our culture And one of the critiques of the Cyborg Manifesto is the culture she speaks of is very obviously Western and most specifically North American. But the self in this culture typically defaults because of structures of power to taxonomies that are white, male, cis, straight, and Mm able-bodied. So she says, my cyborg myth is about transgressed boundaries, potent fusions, and dangerous possibilities. I I do love that quote. Yeah. It's a she has some pretty metal one-liners for sure. She really does. If you can like parse through the the very like the first middle or sorry, yeah, the the, the first through the middle. It's a, it's that <laughs> second two-thirds. There's a solid chunk where she'll just say something and you're like, "Wait." Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. There's one part where she compares like post-feminism to an amusement park of torture or something like that. And I'm just like, my eye caught the the term amusement park and I had to go back and went, wait, what? Oh. Yeah. Oh. Why are we talking about an amusement park? Yeah. So she was, (laughs) the Cyborg Manifesto was very critical of traditional feminist thought and feminism and is skeptical of the unifying identity of womanhood. So Mm -hmm. she stresses affinity over identity. And the reason she uses the cyborg is because the cyborg is meat and machine coming together to coexist. There's no battle for supremacy within the body. It isn't the man versus the machine. It's, and to extend the cyborg myth like you brought up, it's you using a hammer. You're not fighting with the hammer. You're using the hammer to help you. You two are working together. You are meat and this is machine and you have come together at this point of conjuncture, this where your hand grasps the handle and you now are working as one extension of the same organism. This is affinity. This is not identity. This is coming together, creating an identity within one another, creating affinity. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, a synergy to use to use synergy. business talk. Synergy. <laughs> synergy. Like the figure. Synergy. Synergy. A synchronicity. I do want to mention since we are talking about hand movements, you you have like the perfect like cult leader hand movements when you're talking about this. You make a lot of like round shapes with your hands when you yes. when you yes with the yeah it's yes. it's wonderful. I'm I'm entranced is what I'm trying to say. I know. Yeah. I speak a lot with my hands. Someone once asked me if I uh, majored in Italian theater. 
And it took me <laughs> literal years to understand that they were being a bitch. <laughs> I, I had, I did not understand what she meant when she asked me that. And then like three years later, I was like sitting down and I was like, I think she was saying that I talk with my hands a lot and I'm really fucking dramatic. <laughs> it was a, she implanted a grenade. <laughs> A three-year-long time bomb. I think about it all the time. (laughs) I love it. Keep doing it. (laughs) I'm going to bring it out. So the difference between woman as a category and the affinity that she's advocating through the cyborg is that women are deeply embedded in hierarchies of power, and we have to reframe the politics to account for the highly complex realities that existed within womanhood. So one of the things that she mentioned at the time is that a lot of traditional feminists in creating this unifying identity of womanhood ignored the systems of powers that certain women occupied, which is white Mm -hmm. women, the way that white women actually are sitting quite pretty within the systems of power, even as we are oppressed by it in some ways, we are still within this axis and able to use our power as white women against other women. So there's no way to say that all women experience everything the same way at all times. It's not an appropriate and affinity identity. And she does mention the term uh, people of color in her text. And she says Mm -hmm. that people of color is a great affinity because it's not making an identif actually I think she mentions women of color specifically. Um she does, because yeah. women of color is an affinity within the status of womanhood. It's an affinity that women who are not white experience this particular type of womanhood at the expense of white womanhood. Yeah, she actually does mention that there's almost this extra layer of otherness to them as well. So that women of color actually embody the the ideal of the cyborg even greater than uh, a white woman. We should mention that Donna Harvey also is a, she is a white cis woman. I'm not sure of her sexual preferences, not that it matters in this case, but I, I do, I do appreciate that she does respect a level of privilege to this because she also does mention that modern feminism uh, kind of falls over its own feet based on the fact that she believes at least that uh, modern feminism disregards the, its own, uh, epistemological like its own like consciousness of knowledge mm-hmm. that it could utilize as a, a tool and and kind of sets that aside in many cases that that they actually have more power than they are willing to admit right and when we say modern feminism she's speaking about modern feminism in the 80s yes in the mid in the mid 80s correct <laughs> the seventh the late 70s and mid 80s. So an affinity is not stable. It's not a stable essentialist identity. And she says the cyborg imagery means both building and destroying machines, identities, categories, relationships, space stories. Mm -hmm. So this building and destroying will become a significant theme in her most recent text. Sorry, excuse me, one of her most recent texts. She's already like published a bunch more after that, which is what yeah. we will be talking about, which is staying with the trouble, making kin in the Thule scene. So she mm-hmm. builds further on this concept of building and destroying and unpacks the ways we live and die together and the entanglement that makes of human and non-human life. Okay. So here's the text. I'm showing it to Derek. It's got a weird picture on it i don't know what this is it's like there's a pelvis like a, and there's like flipper hands and then there's like, like some a totem vertebrae and there's like a butterfly at top 
And yeah, it, it's like a it's like a nightmare totem. <laughs> it's a nightmare totem. From the title alone, staying with the trouble, making kin in the Thulu scene, I would like to describe. I would like to define some key terms that will help us understand her work. Please and thank you. First of all, Thulu scene. Spelled very similar to Cthulhu, but some of the H's are swapped around, which is what makes it frustratingly different. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's C-H-T-H-U-L-U instead of C-T-H-U-L-H-U. Do you see yeah. where the H's and the U's are? Completely different. Any idiot, totally different. any idiot would know that. They wouldn't read a whole book pronouncing it Cthulhu scene and then watch a video and realize that they've been saying it wrong in their head this whole time because that would be ridiculous. <laughs> it's obviously um, a different word, guys. I guess fun fact to the um, exhaustive nature of Lovecraft uh, himself. It's not even pronounced Cthulhu according to Lovecraft because all of his shit was never meant to be like read aloud or like ever envisioned because it was all just like the it's scarier in your head kind of shit. I'm a xenophobic racist. It, it's actually he said that the H's are supposed to pr be pronounced as if you were breathing outward. So it's more like cuckoo. Shut up Lovecraft. Do you think Lovecraft was an incel? Oh 100%. I'm pretty sure that is like actually part of it. Yeah. <laughs> I, if I remember right, that is absolutely a thing where he's like, women don't want to sleep with women me. Women don't want to sleep with me because I keep saying cuckoo every time. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, have you heard of Cthulhu? And he's like, it's actually Cthulhu. You're not supposed to say it or read it with your eyes or your mouth. You're supposed to feel it in your body. It's forbidden knowledge. Can I tell you about Nyarl and Thothep? It's an unknowable horror, but also it's like other people. Do you know what I'm saying? Anyways, fuck Lovecraft. Um, yeah. So she, Haraway has built the Thulu scene from two Greek words, Cthune and Kanos, which is earth and fresh or new. So okay. it's, fr it's fresh earth. It's the new earth. It's the earth as it is present. Mm, she coins, fresh dirt. <laughs> fresh dirt. She, she coins this term to counter the Anthropocene, which is a name that we use to describe our current era, where it's believed that humans have the most significant impact on the earth and everything on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, anthro is in human, yeah. Haraway mm -hmm. believes that the term Anthropocene centers human identity and experience, making it impossible for us to stay rooted in the present. So since we view Earth as our home and vessel, we wrap our understanding of it in language that benefits us. The Thulu scene, by contrast, is a time where humans decenter ourselves and focus on the thonic beings that surround us, which is everything that exists outside our understanding, both ancient and new forces that don't care about us or our presence. Mmm, eldritch and horrifying. <laughs> but not chthonic. But not chthonic. Tentacles. She says that she imagines that these thonic beings have tentacles and stingers. They're furry. They scurry. They have many legs and many eyes. They're kind of everything. It's like a nightmare Dr. Seuss book. They've got tentacles and stingers. They're furry and they scurry. <laughs> Can you write the kid book version of this? I would really appreciate that. In their corners, they will linger. And their eyes are full of fury. Yeah, we okay. Yeah, <laughs> we'll we'll workshop it later. We'll workshop. Yeah, it we'll later. do. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah. Come at me, um, Simon and Schuster. 
Are you still a publisher? I don't know. <laughs> Penguin books for kids? <laughs> Penguin. So, staying with the trouble, the title of the book, is her way of describing the way we stay focused on the present. Rather than apocalyptic thought or fetishization of the past, we must focus on the lives we are living now and how we interact with other humans and non-humans and even the thonic beings we can't understand. So this, to stay with mm. the trouble is the way that we make and unmake our current place in the world. I really like that, especially that appeals to me very much from what we mentioned before, how she's she's coming from an uh, evolutionarily or evolutionary theology. She's coming she from every that. background ever. Every background ever. Well, the idea of, of focusing too much on apocalyptic thought and not living in the moment is personally one of my biggest critiques of certain <laughs> religious structures is that if you focus too much on oh doomsday is this day mm -hmm. you're not going to focus at all on advancing humanity and advancing culture i think that's one of the biggest issues with modern conservatism is it is very much founded in evangelical thought which has an end date in mind and they're always looking out for these signs of the end times while also simultaneously embracing it Mm, and that, right. that completely destroys any type of progressiveness. You know, progressivism being a bad thing because we must conserve the, the ways that will get us into the, the proper afterlife. Not saying that they're necessarily wrong, but at a certain point, if you stop the progression of humanity, you're assuming very much that what we have now is perfect when any type of, you know, outward looking would show you that it wasn't. To move forward is is the only way. In my, again... Okay. <laughs> no, I, you're absolutely right. And we also see these themes in so much of science fiction. I hate Interstellar. And we're not going to talk about how much I hate Interstellar. But I think okay. it really... <laughs> I think it really capsizes on this... Or excuse me, capitalizes on this idea of like, ooh, it's too late. No, it's, it's too late. We fucked everything up too much. There's nothing we can do. So we got to look mm -hmm. for, for places to go beyond the fucked up husk that we're trying to abandon. And that's something Haraway critiques in a lot of scientific thought is this apocalyptic thinking of, well, we've, we've fucked up the earth and there's nothing to do. All we can do is minimize damage from here on yes. out. And okay. it's too late. The problem is too big. We are too small and there's nothing we can do about it. Yes, that's okay. Perfect. Love that. Yeah. <laughs> But Heavenly, Matthew McConaughey couldn't grow corn. He couldn't grow he, corn. He couldn't grow corn, so he went to space. He couldn't grow corn, he went to space, and that woman was like, what if love was all about? And they're like, first of all, you're an emotional harpy who shouldn't be a scientist. And then at the end of the movie, Matthew McConaughey was like, what if love we was what to it's do all this. about? Oh, no. And everyone's no. like, wow, I can't believe he figured it out. It's amazing. He loved, and that was the answer. If only we had listened two and a half hours before to the woman who brought that up. But she was crying while she said it. So, I mean, hysterical. You can't believe what she says. He had to go to space and find Matt Damon, who's always in space for some reason. Why is Matt Damon always in space? If Matt Damon's in space, we have to leave him there. We have to leave Matt Damon in space. We he's got potatoes. That's a different movie. We can't. It's too expensive. He's he's cooked up some type of evil. It's just not worth it. If you leave a Matt Damon far enough from a Ben Affleck for too long, his his mind just breaks. <laughs> 
Matt Damon and Ben Affleck have created odd kin within one another, and they need each other to survive. <laughs> they need each other to weave meaningful stories. This is what Haraway is trying to tell us. Uh, they wield each other. <sighs> okay. Why hasn't Matt Damon stopped Ben Affleck from whatever he's been doing the last couple of years? <laughs> He's dating teenagers now? Matt Damon, where are you? <laughs> He's in space when we needed him most. No. Where was he? <laughs> what fools we were. All that money spent sending that Matt Damon to space. This is, I take school so seriously. Clearly, yes. <laughs> this is going very well. <laughs> Kin, and specifically odd kin, are those we are responsible for and which extends to more than just our biological and genealogical family. Rather, in staying with the trouble, we should be making kin with that which surrounds us, which is each other, animals, the earth, and life around us in the moment. She writes, staying with the trouble requires making odd kin. That is, we require each other in unexpected collaborations and combinations in hot compost piles. Mm, uh-huh. Oh, the phraseology of it. Is she Chills, wrong? Not the good ones. Is she She's wrong? not wrong. No, I, I do love it. It's a found family sort of sense, but in an ultra-naturalist sort of view of that whatever is around you, regardless of how we would otherwise define it through... Uh, naturalist or or scientific means must be contained within our family because it is what we have nearest to us. Um, I'm sorry that does mean that turkey bur- turkey burger is um, your your lovely little demon dog is in fact your oddkin is your your biological daughter now. Yeah. Um, no, I know. <laughs> she told you. She in your nightmares, do you just wake up sometimes and just red-eyed, she's standing over you, like, whispering horrible things <laughs> in a language you can't understand yet understand simultaneously? No, I I, fe- I feel it. I Listen, I love my dog. Talk mm-hmm. a lot of shit about her because she deserves it. And that's fair. Mm-hmm. That's That's something she has to atone for. But when she looks at me... With her little tiny face and her little overbite and we're going to bed and she stretches out and she puts all four of her little paws in my back. That's fucking joy. There is nothing more joyful than the connection that I have with this tiny monster. <laughs> this thing, not under your bed or in your closet, but in your bed. But in- The way that all monsters should be. <laughs> But telling me daily that I'm not good enough and also <laughs> that I am good enough. It's a toxic relationship that we just embrace. She says it all with her tiny little watery eyes that I have to clean because she has this little smush face. So I got to clean her watery eyes. I have this special stuff. What is this? I envy tear stain remover powder that I brush on her eyeballs once a month. Unbelievable the things that I do for this thing that I love. You are, I, this is, yep. She's a very adorable thing. She's a very good duck. <laughs> she is the Thulu scene. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the world that Haraway is building is, the, the Thulu scene is not Earth exactly, but what she calls Terraopolis. A rich world inoculated against post-humanism, but rich in compost. 
inoculated against human exceptionalism, but rich in humus, ripe for multi-species storytelling. So Terraopolis also is Terra as an Earth, not it's not Terraopolis because those <laughs> No, Terra as an Earth. Though I Scary do, city. I do. <laughs> Ooh, it's a spooky place. <laughs> no, we inhabit Terraopolis. This mm-hmm. is about Terraopolis. <laughs> it feels like a place in like the DC universe. Like, yeah, we go to like, you know, uh, Gotham Bozo or Metropolis or Yeah, Terraopolis. <laughs> Now, interestingly, she mentioned that this Thulu scene, Terraopolis, is inoculated against post-humanism. The Cyborg Manifesto is a feminist post-humanist text. So she is building upon and has since changed a lot of her understanding. And actually, in one speech, she quite demurely and rather cutely says that she had a cyborg phase. Uh, <laughs> which is was her way of kind of mentioning that she doesn't she's not a post-humanist any longer. She doesn't think that there is any value in looking past the human with this apocalyptic view that the human is meaningless. Rather, we just need to decenter the human identity and understand it has an important place on Terraopolis, but it's not the solely important living organism on Terraopolis. It's important in the way that animals are important and the way that plants are important and the way that Earth and the Thulu scene are important. Sure, a restructuring of identity, but not to the extreme that she had previously determined. Growth is important. Good Growth. for you, Donna. Yes, absolutely. And throughout her book, she also uses the term SF, which stands for string figures, science fiction, speculative fabulation, speculative feminism, science fact, and so far. Does it mean something different every time or does it stand for all of those those things simultaneously? Not necessarily simultaneously. Sometimes SF means speculative fabulation, but all of these things work together to create the term SF. They they are woven together so that they complement one another, they complete what the other might be lacking, so they're a unified term SF. Okay, so, uh, that's fine, yeah. I, I just, I'm, I'm also recalling in Cyborg Manifesto where there was a certain point where the term relationship was broken up by a dash between the R-E-L-A. God, she does that a lot. I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't know why. She well, does hey, Shinship. She does do that a lot where she'll kind of like break up a word into into two parts and I I no one understands why now. Like what are we stressing in this broken word? We're all missing the the Haraway code. There's like there's gold <laughs> hidden somewhere and if we would just decipher it. All of these SF terms are how we relate to, understand, and form connections with one another across barriers and into the future. And string figures are especially of interest to Haraway and throughout this book. And she describes string figures as... And what I'm about to say is one entire quote that is one sentence. And it will be Mm -hmm. a sneak peek for those who have not read Haraway, why people dislike her writing. Here we go. One quote, one sentence. Let's do this. String figures are about giving and receiving patterns, dropping thread and failing, but sometimes finding something that works, something consequential and maybe even beautiful that wasn't there before, of relaying connections that matter, of telling stories and hand upon hand, digit upon digit, attachment site upon attachment site, to craft conditions for finite flourishing on Terra 
on earth, end quote. Yeah, catch your breath. How many commas were in that quote? I got so many. I'm biggest upwards of like 15. <laughs> it's it's pretty. There, there's nothing. There's you can't say that it's not. It is. She is a beautiful writer. She when when she crafts a sentence that long, it's not dragging on. Mm-hmm. It just keeps going. And there is a small difference that sometimes feels meaningless. But it is it is a beautiful sentence that she is constructing. You just got to follow her on the, you know, you're there on her time, really. You're reading her book. <laughs> you, you are lucky that she is there talking to you at all. There's there's just like this one side of my brain is, is basically like, okay, let's wrap it up. Let's, let's keep it going. And the other part of me is like, keep going, Donna. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's the way that's the way I feel about her writing. At times I feel frustrated. This book was too <laughs> long. And I don't mean too long as in I think it should have been shorter. Because it isn't actually that long. I mean it's like a thick book, but half of it is notes for each of the chapters. It's only like a hundred and seventy it's only 168 pages. Mm-hmm. But it it's just that sometimes she expands upon an idea so much. She like unpacks so many different aspects of it in so many ways. There's an entire chapter on urine. And I was like, could that not have been a section? Did we need a whole chapter? Dude, on that? we need a whole chapter on urine. Hey, put that on our, our Monster Crush merch. Do we need a whole chapter on urine? Someone say yes. <laughs> so wait, we don't kick shame here. We we do not have the ground to stand on for that. Um, yeah, some would say yes. <laughs> so, Haraway points to the Anthropocene as a Western concept that prioritizes and reinforces colonial mold, modes of thought about what will and will not work to save us. And we've kind of touched on this briefly. This way of thinking means we only care about what we know will work. Or even that we think it's too late to make a change. We have already levied too much destruction against the earth to make a comeback. And Mm -hmm. she says, like all offspring of colonizing and imperial histories, I, we, have to relearn how to conjugate worlds with partial connections and not universals in particulars. Okay. I I do wonder a little bit, um, just to to kind of address the own privilege that she is coming from because mm-hmm. th- there is a level here where she is writing as again a cis white woman right and there there's a part where she is saying to um to negate the the identities from ethnicity which i think rubs a little raw yes so this is something that she's been critiqued for and that a lot of post-gender, post-race theory is typically critiqued for as well, um, is that it ignores the reality that race and gender play in creating identities. And sure. while the the goal should be that race and gender are n- no more identifying factors than eye color, we mm-hmm. want to then unpack the privilege not unpack. We want to dismantle the privilege that is associated with certain markers and to say that we should just 
kind of ignore markers and get rid of all markers, especially coming from a white woman, to a lot of people of color or to people who are speaking about gender abolition to a lot of trans people, it feels like it's an invalidation of their unique relationship with these markers. And so to say like, well, we'll just have a future that's post-race and post-gender, and then we don't have to worry about any of that is kind of a way of, of not doing the work of mm-hmm. removing the stigma associated by institutions of power on these markers of identity. Yeah, I mean, it is theory. It is philosophical. It's not meant to have any sort of like step-by-step plan or anything like that. But I also absolutely do see where people can can look at this and just see it as her waving off uh, all of the the history and the the institutionalized issues which which these things stem from. That she is saying, like, wouldn't it be better if all of this was fixed? She's not saying how to fix it. But absolutely, because she's not saying how to fix it, I think people are taking it the wrong way, too. Even if she had said how to fix it, it, it would have been taken great. And it, I, yeah, there, there's no perfect way for this theory to come about because it, it makes a lot of assumptions about what comes before. Mm-hmm. And no one really knows. That's the, that's the point of it being theory. Right. And, you know, that's why it's important to, there are people like Haraway who kind of propose all of this and there's really no action behind what they're saying. And then Mm -hmm. we have to then say, well, what parts of that is meaningful? What part of that can we, can we superimpose onto praxis? What can we take away from this? And what are things that we need to really deconstruct and and stray away from. And currently, things like gender abolition, race abolition, post-race, post-gender tend to be racist and uh, misogynistic, transphobic dog whistles. So anytime those terms are used, we have to be very critical about why they're being used and what they're actually saying. And if what they're saying, like Haraway is saying, is we want a world where gender means nothing more than the color of your eye, then mm-hmm. why wouldn't she have said that? Why would she have used a term that has been co-opted, taken, and morphed into a transphobic ideology? Which is, well, gender doesn't even matter anyway, so like, why should we respect people's identities within it? That's an excellent point, too. Yeah, that you're, you're absolutely right. It has absolutely been co-opted and manipulated and uh, really bastardized by more hateful voices. So yeah, you absolutely do have to be critical of who's saying it and why they're saying it. She she has also, to her credit, a lot of people were rightfully very critical of her term gender abolition in the Cyborg Manifesto. And she has taken time and done a a great deal of work to say, no, 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 no. Here's what I really meant. This is not, Mm -hmm. this is not what I meant. I understand that gender is very important to people and their identities that they forge within gender is very meaningful. What I want is where that is no longer how people operate, wield and use power. Right. And it's fair that people wouldn't totally understand it with uh, the first read through or people might not even read it and just get it from secondhand information. So, yeah, uh, absolutely. She has taken the time. It was written in 1985. It it has been simplified and she has also taken a step away from it and grown, as we mentioned, too. Absolutely. She's no longer post-humanist. She's not post-humanist. I don't cyborg. I don't know her. (laughs) I don't watch Teen Titans. (laughs) Yeah, she did not enjoy... The Justice League movie. Cyborg? No. Oh, well, no. She actually might be a huge fan of the Zack Snyder cut. 
Okay, I have not seen it. It's cyborg. It's four hours long. It has cyborg story in it. Did you cyborg story was completely cut from the theatrical release of Justice League because Josh Whedon, on top of being a foot pervert, is also racist. (laughs) There's so many foot perverts in Hollywood. God, I don't know. And I'm so interested. As a quick aside, I am so interested in why there are so many men in Hollywood, in positions of like power, typically directors who are super hmm. into feet. Like, what is happening? Why? Why feet? Th- this is turning into like a weird crime podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Quentin Tarantino has so many crimes to account for, but the one that I'm interested in in this moment is how many times I got to see feet in his films. Yeah. Wait, but. We get you like Uma Thurman's feet. <laughs> we get it. Is this? I thought this movie was for us. Oh, it's for you. It's for you and Uma <laughs> Thurman's feet. Sorry, my mistake. I thought. I thought that no, right. It's like Haraway taking us on these long sentence journeys. It's not about us. It's about us sitting next to her on this roller coaster. That she built. <laughs> and a roller coaster it is. It also feels like a roller coaster where she's trying to explain stuff the entire time. <laughs> yeah, it's more like a fun it's more like a fun house. Woo! Well, okay. Whew. Well. So many tangents. That's Monster Crush. We love it here. <laughs> so we, we have nowhere else to go. <laughs> This foundation of understanding built on connections is vital to her use of SF and its meaning. So through stories and speculation, we build relations with kin, which is like us, and odd kin, those who are outside our understanding. Through SF, Mm -hmm. we visualize the stake we all have on this world and how much we must be present for one another and be held responsible to each other. And she uses this really beautiful example of some of the ways this storytelling SF connects us across species. I'm going to send you in the chat this comic that I'm sure you may have seen. Um, But it is from, yeah, it's the comic XKCD. And in this comic, uh, there are these two people walking, and one of them is saying there are these orchids whose flowers look like female bees, so when males try to mate with them, they transfer pollen. And this is something that a lot of flowers do. They mimic the sexual organs of various insects to entice Mm -hmm. different insects to come and kind of like get a little freaky and bump and grind and get that pollen going. But this particular orchid makes flowers that no bees land on because the bee that it mimics went extinct long ago. And so on the comic, it says, without its partner, the orchid has resorted to self-pollinating, a last-ditch genetic strategy that only delays the inevitable. Nothing of the bee remains, but we know it existed from the shape of the flower. It's an idea of what the female bee looked like to the male bee as interpreted by a plant. So the only memory of the bee is a painting by a dying flower. It's a oh. really it's a really beautiful comic and thought. And the reason she uses it is because she uses this to illustrate the ways that we we interweave our stories with one another and the way that we hold each other accountable for the place that we 
take up in this world. So here's this orchid who used the sex organs of a bee to help itself continue living. It was kind of this symbiotic relationship of I I mimic your likeness so that male bees will come and help me pollinate. I survive and you continue to survive as well. And now that this bee is extinct, this flower is actually the only remaining image that we have of what this bee that we have never seen and will never see again looks like. And so this flower continues to tell the story of its odd kin, this bee. Mm -hmm. That's, it's, it's deeply beautiful. (laughs) It is. You look, you look so unimpressed. (laughs) No, I'm very impressed. I'm also trying to think of, uh, because there was something I read recently, which was also like less beautiful. And it was about how like prehistoric felines essentially learn to mimic the sounds of like uh, infant primates. And then they further evolved into house cats just to like, because we started feeding them. Cause we're like, Oh baby, what's yeah. your baby? I, f- I feed you. And then they're just like, okay, yeah, this is, this is good. This is it's good. just like this, the, we're working this together. remnant of predatory nature of just cats mimicking human children. I've also read some speculation that rather than we domesticating what is now the house cat, the house cat actually domesticated us by following rodents to our homes and then moving Mm. in and being like, I'll kill these rodents and I'll make sure that they don't eat your grain and they don't poop on your bread and make your children sick. If you feed me when I'm not getting Mm -hmm. enough rodents, if you love me (laughs) and you give me shelter... There is also someone in my life who's very, very dear to me, and she has a cat named Steve. So shout out to Steve the cat. Shout out to Steve. Um, what's up, Steve? Uh, Steve, whenever we, we do a Zoom call, I will hear Steve in the background, and I swear his his brow sounds exactly like, Mom? Oh, God. Mom? 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 It's what just, if that's next, though? Thing. What if that is next of animals... Because my understanding is that cats, wild cats don't communicate. And this is, verbally. this is everything that we're doing is we're just building on these odd kittens, right? Cats don't go, yeah. verbally communicate in the wild. They communicate right. verbally to, because they know that that's how we communicate. They apparently yeah. have telepathic communication and they're like, these stupid monkeys don't, aren't, they aren't plugged in. They haven't reached the fifth dimension yet. So we have to... If you read the Warrior Cats series... Actually, I never have. I'm assuming that that's... The Warrior Cats? Yeah. I was not um, a Warrior Cat child. I would neither, neither was I, but I worked in... Because we were cool, and we are still cool. (laughs) Still very, very cool. I say on this podcast, where for 65 (laughs) minutes I've been talking about a woman (laughs) who writes strange books... The coolest woman. Okay, we did it. Cats. Bees. <laughs> well, cyborgs make a comeback in the Thulu scene, but this mm. time they're not machines in just any sense, nor are they machine-organism hybrids. In fact, they're not even hybrids at all. They are imploded entities, dense material somatic things, proliferating realignment of particular sorts, not all the time everywhere, but here, there, and in between with consequences. I couldn't have said it better if I was on 
Peyote. I don't know what that means, but here's what I do. <laughs> this is what I assume it means based on my understanding of this chapter. Cyborgs uh-huh. are kin in a post-World War II globalized and information-rich world. This is the way that we have implemented technology to build gaps between ourselves to make it easier to communicate for modern medicine, for all of the ways that we enhance ourselves and the lives around us with these cyborgic kin, these cyborg Mm -hmm. kin, which are our machines that are used to help us. This is the chapter that talks a lot about urine. So I will say, I don't think this chapter is where all of her best ideas went. And Mm -hmm. I thought it was interesting. You would just say they went right down the drain? (laughs) They went right down. Unfortunately not, because we are awashed with urine. So rather, they went all over us. It's the worst. That's the worst option. That's the worst place it can go. The title of the chapter is literally awash in urine. Huh. So I found it interesting that she started this chapter with just a very brief interlude of the cyborg where she didn't fully explain how the cyborg has transformed from the cyborg manifesto, from this post-humanist man-machine hybrid to this imploded entity that is here, there, and in between with consequences. Okay. 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 I don't know. You know, I can't have yeah. all the answers. No, this is, no one no one could expect you to. <laughs> Honestly, I'm I'm surprised you haven't gone into a fugue state just reading half this stuff because that's <laughs> And important especially to us and the show is the final chapter. We have made it through staying with the trouble. Uh in this final <laughs> In this final chapter, Haraway presents a series of short stories she wrote with other like-minded theorists and writers about a child named Camille. Camille lives in a future world where select children have been linked to various animals, and Camille is linked to a monarch butterfly. Through genetic engineering in the womb, these children become a new generation of thonic ones who are of this world and a world we cannot see or understand through a direct bond with a non-human oddkin. And there are five final short stories that follow Camille, one through five, as they grow old, die, and are born anew in a generation that has taken over care of the earth with the help of all the creatures that make up her population. So Camille is a butterfly person? Camille is a butterfly person. Camille Mothra. Camille is Mothra. Okay. Camille, and then this is where we get into Godzilla. Now, stay with me. <laughs> oh, oh, I am there. Yes. No. I, we, no, we haven't introduced Godzilla yet. That's later. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Yeah, so in the womb, um, they take five children in this, what they call the Council of Compost. <laughs> they take mm-hmm. five nope. select children for this first generation, and they splice their DNA with the select DNA from... Here, I'll just quote. Camille Wan was born. Oh, and um, they use, they have created a gender neutral pronoun, per, which is neither Mm. he nor she nor they. It is kind of like this ambiguous identity. P-E-R? P-E-R, per. Per, okay. Camille Wan was born among (laughs) a small group of five children, and per was the only youngster linked to an insect. 
Other children in this first cohort became symbionts with fish, birds, crustaceans, and amphibians. The animals themselves were not modified with human material. Their role in the symbiosis were to teach and to flourish in every way possible in dangerous and damaged times. I'm wondering what level of evil science was applied to the... Because when you say, like, fish, my my brain immediately goes to goldfish, but then the evil science part of it is like, sharks are fish. Sharks are fish. It wasn't shark. It was a trout. They do say. Oh. Um, okay. I guess I didn't realize you'd want to know. Sorry, this. let me go back. I mean, uh, hey, that's okay. so, what I'm here for. One, one child was linked with an American eel. Uh, well, okay. Okay, so not a shark. Not um, a shark, still bitey, though. Not- <laughs> still, still bitey. Harnesses electric power, so that's cool. Uh, the, bird, <laughs> the bird child was a kestrel, which is a, which is a murder bird. They are murder birds. And Two evil scientists down, okay. <laughs> the crustacean was a big sandy crayfish. Okay. Have you seen the thing that um, it's car- carcification, which is the theory that the end of evolution is looking like a crab because so many so many species have evolved to crab-like shapes? So many. What does that mean? So many species. How many species have evolved to, evolved to look okay. like crabs? I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna look this Besides up. Besides the way. one the, crab, <laughs> there's apparently like a lot of them. Um, crabs. Keep, keep keep going with these uh, okay. these things. Uh, big sandy crayfish and the amphibian was a salamander and the insect was a monarch butterfly. Okay, I do like the monarch butterfly. They're just like I just, I just really like you guys like eels and stuff. I just really like. And it's also noted Camille 1 becomes very close with the child who was linked with the kestrel. And kestrels eat butterflies. So this is another extension of them making odd kin with one another, even though they present an inherent risk to one another. There is danger in them being close. They are able to cross that boundary and find value in each other and the connections that they make. I love that. So now to get real horrifying, uh, carcinization, I apologize, carcinization is an example of convergent evolution in which a crustacean evolves into a crab-like form from non-crab-like form. Uh, The term was introduced by evolutionary biologist uh, L.A. Borodale, who described it as one of many attempts of nature to evolve a crab. And apparently there's like dozens, dozens and dozens of mostly prehistoric animals which all evolved into crabs that we now know as crabs, but they all evolved from like different types of animals who were okay. all uh, aquatic. So, so you're saying the future is crab. The future is crab. Crabs all the way down. You gotta see the doctor for that. <laughs> no, that's how we begin the process. <laughs> snip, snip. The doctor's like, no, I will not treat you. <laughs> no, no, no. You do not understand. Now that we have stayed with the trouble and made our way through this text, there is one more theory that I must briefly introduce. Real quick to the listener. You did it. I'm proud of you. You did it. We did this together. I hope you learned something new. The Cyborg Manifesto is available for free online. Read it if you want. Do do it. Join us. Because we told you everything you need to know about it. And then some. (laughs) Okay, one more theory. My last theory. In 1982, 
Julia Kristov, sorry, Kristova, wrote Powers of Horror, an essay on objection. In her use of the term, the abject is our reaction to that which breaks down the distinction between the self, the subject, and the other, the abject. The subjective, which is our understanding of ourself, is threatened by the abject, a place where meaning is collapsed. Most often, our reaction to the abject is horror. So, for example, when we see a corpse, which is the abject, our subjective experience of living is threatened as we grapple with seeing something that looks like us in an unalive state. Our reaction uh-huh. is then of disgust, and we withdraw from the experience to protect our self-image, which is us alive and functioning. Sure. Okay. So this feeling of abject horror is a barrier in making oddkin. If we are horrified yeah. by the concept of anything that is outside of our subjective realm and understanding, then how can we possibly make oddkin in these hot compost piles and become humus in the Thulu scene? So I believe that this is how we bridge the gap between the Anthropocene and the Cthulhu scene, right? Because, sorry, the Thulu scene, because theory without praxis is nothing. It's one thing mm-hmm. to say, go out, make oddkin, stop being so selfish. But how do we achieve this oddkin without falling victim to the fear of the abject? I propose that we who speculate about monster smooching are the way mm-hmm. through the abject. We are the leaders to the future. Is what we are the leaders to the future. And this is where we begin. Monster crush. We will not just be smooching any monsters today, though I think oh. we've actually made a great practice in making Oddkin in every episode of Monster Crush. Yeah. I would like to turn to a work of speculative anthropology by Dougal Dixon for this week's Bachelors. Dougal Dixon. All right, let's do it. Man After Man will be the text that we are dealing with, and it is a speculative work about what humans might look like in the future as we engineer ourselves and adapt to new environments. Beginning Mm -hmm. 200 years in the future and ending 5 million years from hence, which is the terminology he uses, Man After Man includes stories of struggle, adaptation, and survival among our grandchildren and the world we left for them. Okay. Theoretical evolution, then? Yes. Okay, yes. speculative evolution, yeah. Speculative, okay. exactly. Uh, who, briefly, who is Dougal Dixon besides having a great name? I love the name Dougal. I have a stuffed animal named Dougal. He is- <laughs> I'm going to guess Scottish, just uh, right <laughs> off the bat. He is a Scottish paleontologist <laughs> and geologist who has written over 200 books. Most of them, you might like this, Derek, are about dinosaurs. Uh-huh. So he's a fellow dinosaur I love dinosaurs. Lover. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate I love Dougal Dixon already. <laughs> his most popular work is probably his After Trilogy, which includes mm-hmm. After Man, The New Dinosaurs, and then Artex Man After Man. I'm going to send some photos your way as we talk Ooh. about just briefly what what these texts are. So okay. uh, After Man is a really actually rather cute speculative study of what animals might look like after a mass extinction event that wipes out all the humans and most animals. And mm-hmm. here is a little, here's an image of some of the creatures that he has created. These are like little bat babies. And 
Uh, one of the bats looks like a little flower, and they have really Aww. long legs, and they're super cute little furry babies. It's almost like a, a bunny with a flower head. And I kind of get what he's going for, because it also looks like one of them is using, they're using the flower mimicry to try to catch insects who would otherwise exactly. be pollinating. That's cute. And the other one has like really big, like fennec fox, or yeah, they, I think they are bat ears. And it looks like a horrifying chupacabra. It, it has velociraptor feet. <laughs> And its back legs, it's doing a fucking sebulba where its back legs are extending over its front like its hands. Why is it like that? Why is it looking at me? That's it's, what oh. the future looks like, Derek, okay? <laughs> Don't be scared of the future. <laughs> no. Here's your thoughts. His next book, uh, which is The New Dinosaurs, imagines what non-avian dinosaurs might look like if they had never gone extinct. Here's hmm. whatever this is. Uh, whoa okay that's a that's chunky (laughs) um okay it's kind of like a pachycephalosaurus with like and mixed with a sharpay with a little fin for a tail and floofy yeah so the new dinosaurs was actually pretty heavily critiqued by a lot of paleontologists because i could see that Paleontologists do not like it when you make jokes about dinosaurs, apparently. Um, They felt that he relied too much on the current taxonomy of animals alive today. And eventually Mm -hmm. all of his dinosaurs ended up looking like some amalgamation of a dinosaur and an animal that we know today. So I guess they were like, it's not creative enough, dude. You didn't invent things out of nothing. God, you're so weak. I mean, he's, he's messing with evolution, though. That That is kind of the way it would work, because it, it's it's floofy, but they do appear to be feathers. And I mean, these are, would be avians. I don't know why it has a whale tail. That makes me uncomfortable. I don't know why it's it has that. For fashion. Yeah, maybe. I mean, there's also the entire theory that we have dinosaurs completely wrong. The dinosaur, we are, when we recreate dinosaurs from fossils, we are negating the fact that we have no idea what their fat content would look like. Right. The shrink you know, wrap theory. Which we've yeah, talked about like before you, on this show. Exactly, we have. Where if you recreate a baboon from a baboon skeleton or a hippopotamus from a hippopotamus skeleton, and like if you were using the same kind of thought that paleontologists do, it would look like a completely different animal. Right. And that dinosaurs have feathers and stuff like that. So yeah, there's... I don't, I don't think he's like... He's probably off, but this also reminds me... Who knows is the other... You're absolutely yeah. right. Who knows? The other thing is, right around this time would have been the same time that, like, speculative evolution was really popular. I remember that when I was a kid, like, National Geographic had on their cover, what if dinosaurs had lived and, hu- and like, primates had not been the the premier kind of species. Right. And there was a humanoid, the sauroid is what they called it, which was a humanoid dinosaur with these really big eyes. And it was on, it was, there was an evolutionary biologist who created this thing was like yeah this is what a person dinosaur would look like they would be the the dominant species deal with it well we featured a dinosaur human hybrid on one of our episodes as well a paleontologist who was like what if a dinosaur lived and eventually Mm -hmm. it evolved to look like a human and for some reason was just like in kansas eating people's cars you know which Uh 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 can't explain everything I mean, when in Kansas, what else are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. 
And then the final in the after trilogy is Man After Man, which follows catastrophic climate change that forces humans to genetically engineer their offspring for a chance at survival and then their inevitable evolution from that point uh, forward. So not natural, but but um, yeah, artificial intelligence. Artif- artificial, artificial, artificial evolution, I apologize. Engineered and then from there. Because it takes uh, it see. starts two hundred years hence and then it goes to five million years. So obviously anything we genetically in any humans that we genetically engineer to survive this new harsh climate will evolve on their own. So we are going to be doing things a little different. I have four bachelors for you, which is quite typical. Three of them, we will be following their evolution over the centuries, the thousands of years and the the millions of years. And typically on Monster Crush, what we do is we don't show the photos. We instead describe, you know, what it looks like, its habitat, its Mm -hmm. behavior, so we can try and find love despite the monstrosity, I will be showing you these photos because today's exercise will be finding love in the monstrosity. Okay. I'm prepared for this. I did watch um, John Carpenter's The Thing on repeat and uh, (laughs) with my eyes just like pried open, uh, trying to find uh, that thing lovable. And uh, yeah, I I am ready for this. One of my favorite things about Man After Man is that some of... The, you know, it it reads kind of like a taxonomy, uh, uh, like that you would find in like a National Geographic or like an encyclopedia, but it also Mm -hmm. features these like vignettes of like Mm -hmm. these creatures and like their story and like what they're doing. And it's really very funny. So our first bachelor, bachelor number one, we first see him 200 years hence. And this is Picarblick, the aquamorph. Ooh. I do like that it's like a mix of This American Life and also National Geographic. (laughs) Our first bachelor is a totally aquatic marine animal that is a mix between a fish, a frog, and a man. Yeah, okay. His legs are long with webbed feet that continue up the leg to the knee. He does have prehensile forelimbs, but he actually swims with them like tight at his side, but he does have hands if he needs to grab anything. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He has gills on his chest. Okay. And I don't, I don't understand why, but he has a utility belt made out of flesh, and I'm not entirely sure what the <laughs> function. Flesh. <laughs> I'm not really sure what the function of the utility belt is because it's not functional. Like he can't put snacks in it, but that's what it looks like. Well, then it's not a utility belt. <laughs> well, that's what it looks like, Derek. Which you will see when I send you the photo. It looks like Batman's utility I, belt. I don't understand what it is. Like night, nightmare fish, Batman. He got that bad utility belt. He can only make a few expressions. So he communicates primarily (laughs) with sound, but it's very primitive at this point. He's only 200 years into his evolution. He hasn't Uh quite perfected the beautiful voice that he will be using later on to communicate. Um, Oh, okay. The expression that he can make is usually like something kind of sad because he does look a little Uh bit like Jabba the Hutt. The sound is sad, not because he is sad. We're not saying that. It's not because his existence is, you know, literal torture. Just because he's ugly. Here's a little. Here's a little snippet into Pickler Blick's life. His great, his great grandfather was a librarian, John Arthur Blick. His grandfather, John Blick Jr., was an artist. 
His father, uh-huh. John Blick III, was an astrophysicist. Now, Pickerblick is an aquamorph, a creature engineered to be part of a new frontier. A wet new frontier. What a pedigree. <laughs> All right, I'm going to send you some pictures of, of our first bachelor in his first form. So here he is. Uh, and I'm also going to include a close-up of some of his features so that you can oh, see. Oh, please do. His little legs and his arms. Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let me see if I can describe. That is a utility belt. Why is that a utility belt? I don't know what that is. I literally do not. There's no mention of like a fatty sack around his waist or. It has to be actual clothes then because that is a utility belt. I, I know. It does look like he's wearing pants. Kinda. And but it, instead of having like the gills on his chest d- that go down his chest and onto his stomach look like abs, so he looks like kind of sexy. Do. Okay, kind of manatee like is what I'm getting because at first I thought that the nose on the very front I thought those were eyes and it looks very grimace like from like McDonald's, but the the eyes are on the side and big wide open like trout like mouth uh, gray in color also so very no the eyes aren't on the side if you look down at the photo I sent you two photos one is kind of like okay. a deeper taxonomy of it the eyes are straight ahead it does Holy it does shit, still those are the have eyes. it does still have predator eyes. Okay, and they they can scowl. Oh god! <laughs> no, it can frown. Um, yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, I I have to imagine that's clothing because that's a that's not natural. I I, mean, I get it's the same color. <laughs> I don't know. All right. I think it just means that okay. in the future we will be genetically engineering ourselves to have some fashion <laughs> at all times. It's it's a necessity. Yeah, the world is uh, underwater, but we have to look good. Maybe these are ear holes on the side. Then I think okay. those are ear holes. Yeah, I know the little. Huh. Yeah. 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 Those have to be ear holes because that's where they would be on the the skull. Okay. So yeah, there is like um, a subsection of. <laughs> Or, yeah, if, I don't think that's a word. But yeah, there's an x-ray into this uh, <laughs> blubbery boy. Yeah. Okay. All right. Hey. Now now we're following the aquamorph. And 50,000 years hence, the aquamorph has continued to evolve and has fully adjusted to marine life. It is now known as the aquatic, and it has a more seal-like appearance. Though he does mm. still have two arms and a sad little face. Uh, they no mm-hmm. longer have their utility belt. But they have since developed a complex language through sound, oh. which allows them okay. to keep contact with other schools of aquas as they travel apart. We imagine like whale song. Is mm-hmm. that kind of That's what I'm thinking yeah. too. Here he is, fifty thousand years hence. Da, 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 da. Hey, aquamorph! Wow, this thing's totally happy with its existence. He looks like a manatee mm-hmm. with arms. Uh, which is just as horrifying as you're imagining. Looks like a very sad man. <laughs> a T. With the same, with still, the still the predator eyes forward, so its eyes have not moved. That's something that I find interesting about all of these creations that Dixon has, has thought about, is they all, none of them become prey, I guess, because they all have forward-facing eyes. Um, so yeah. humans in this iteration are still maintaining themselves at the top of whatever food chain that they are living with, be that underwater or on land. 
has like shoulder pads. His gills are now like just mainly on his chest, and then it looks like he's wearing like a little vest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's okay. This is the thing that's sticking out most to me is that through these like thousands of years of evolution, it has still maintained five digits on each, uh, both uh, two arms with five digits on, on each hand. Yeah. That is interesting. Maybe that it, hasn't... That's, it, use, it strangles the fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, even then, it hasn't, like, you know, that they don't even, they're not even webbed. Like, there's no webbing between the thumb and the forefinger. Mm, that's actually a very good point. I hadn't noticed that. Yeah, I mean, they have to, you have to still recognize this, I guess, in some ways, like, human-esque. So, that, yeah. those five fingers... He just he's like, hey guys, can I can I come to the party? <laughs> well, can he might be on? he might be able to come to the party because one million years hence, the aquatics have begun making trips to land to find food. Through thousands oh. of years of practice, they have developed a technique, now they're tool building, that allows them to build a gelatinous shell that keeps seawater around them even as they waddle around inland in search of food. The tight fit of the shell, which is an improvement from the bubble that they first formed, the photo I show you will have both iterations, allows mm -hmm. them greater mobility and some chance at protecting themselves. So It's almost in like a reverse scuba suit sort of deal. <laughs> yes. Here they are on land uh, looking for food. In uh, one million years hence, the sea, oh, the sea has continued to rise. <laughs> Why do they look so upset? It's the sand, too. It's the yeah, fact that they're covered in sand. It's like, it's overly realistic. Like, these other ones have been like, oh, look at them in their natural habitat, lightly, you know, sprinkled with the sun coming down from the ocean waves. And it's like, now they're covered in fucking beach dirt. Look at them. As you, so there are two. Two of them are wearing the more streamlined, form-fitting shell. These are the ones sure. that will be used to protect and attack. The one in the back, uh -huh. which is in more of an orb, allows it greater carrying capacity, but less mobility. So anytime yeah. they find food or anything that they want to bring back into the water with them, that one in the back sucks it into the orb so that it can just carry it around. And then the other two who have mobility with their arms are able to like, hey, yeah, huh, huh. Mm, so it's, it's a, uh, yeah, it's, um, Osmosis sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, nifty. Yeah, it's like a uh, Popemobile in the back sort of deal. <laughs> it's like two of them are Honda Civics and one of the backs is CRV. It's yes. got a little more carrying capacity, not as much mobility, but it's still, you know, good for getting around town. Yeah. All right. And as climate change continues to devastate Earth, the sea, <laughs> the sea, the seawater kept rising, which was actually threatening the aquatics, sorry, the aquatics food source so all of the coral was dying because the seawater was rising so rapidly the coral couldn't grow up to reach the light and so it was becoming bleached and dying and so they have to then come on land to look for food because they're running out of food in their natural habitat it's really quite sad oh uh, okay so this is this all stems from just just to clarify this is artificial evolution to create an aquatic humanoid hybrid yes. 
that then must return to land for food. Well, we didn't know that a million years later, the earth would still be hella fucked up in our in our defense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that scientific paper, in a million years, the earth going to be hella fucked up. It didn't get published. No one's sure why. <laughs> we, didn't, we didn't know. We didn't know that things were going to be at this point in Earth's history. This is one million years since some major catastrophic environmental devastation has forced humans to begin these genetic modifications. There is no North Pole. Oh. Okay. So, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. This is this is Dougal Dixon's world, and we're just living in it. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not. I'm not critiquing you on this one at all. You do not have to get defensive about there not being a pole. Where does Santa live? He moved to the South Pole. The South Pole's still there. Antarctica's still there. The melting pole will be very important because our third bachelor. Well, we'll get to that when we get to him. Sure, but he sure. has okay. he has a hard life. Hmm. So- Annie. <laughs> this is this is, is bachelor number one the aquamorph come aquatic the aquamorph uh, a human version of aquaman but you know what i think i have built these up to become more horrifying as time goes on so this is the least this is the this is the least worst thing that you're going to see well then this is this is basically just jason momoa this is a one-to-one at this point <laughs> Okay, um, pun intended. Let's take a dive. Let's uh, let's keep going then. All right, Bachelor number two, uh, 500 years hence. This is Graham, the engineered plains dweller. Graham? Graham. Just, its name is Graham? Yes. Okay. Yes, his name is Graham. Our se- <laughs> his human name is Graham. <laughs> Our second bachelor is a human is a human engineered to live on open grasslands. He has been mm-hmm. given massive teeth to help soften the silica-rich grass he eats and a bloated stomach with engineered bacteria that can help break down the cellulose. So he's having to subsist off things that humans were never meant to survive on. Sure, Her- herbivorous sounds like. His five-fingered hand, which he will maintain through his evolution, has modified mm-hmm. nails that turn portions of his hand into blades. I'll send you a photo that will aid him in cutting grass. So he has like little scissor hands. Mm-hmm. Oh, but his name is Graham, not Edward. <laughs> Graham, yes. Graham scissor hands. <laughs> Graham scissor hands, the cousin. He has long legs and long feet that are suited to moving quickly across the land and dark leathery skin with a mane of hair down his back to protect him from the sun because there's little protection in the open expanse of the grassland. Mm-hmm. Graham is okay. the first of the plain dwellers, and when we meet him 500 years hence, he has only just been released. It says here, he was brought up by family, with a capital F, a group of creatures that saw to his every need and trained him for life outside. Only in the last two years did he realize that he was not like the people of family. He was not encased in metallic outer skins. He did not glide along the floor, and cables and tubes did not spiral out of him, connecting him to glass and plastic devices. Am I not like you, family? (laughs) Am I not one of you? (laughs) Here is Graham. Uh, He is going for his first walk. Mm -hmm. After being released by robots. Hey, Graham? (laughs) That's okay. 
You can see on the second photo I sent you, it has a, a more detailed sketch of his hand. So the hand kind of maintains its five finger shape. The thumb is normal. It has a normal shape and a nail. The pointer finger has a nail that is slowly starting to slant towards the pinky finger. And then the, uh -huh. the middle and the ring finger, the nail has completely like taken over a cross section of the finger so that the pinky finger is now has a blade all along the side. What is this? What is it called when you karate chop someone and you hit them with this part of your hand? His I think you, that's, yeah, his, you got a karate chop. Yeah. His karate chop. The karate chop and portion of his hand has like a callus blade, which is from my understanding made out of um, nail. So it's like, yeah, so almost going if you if you look at the back of your hand traveling from your your middle finger down to the 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 back of the blunt of your hand. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's almost like a semicircular blade travels it's diagonal nails yeah. traveling down to this this blade across the back of his hand. Uh much more especially compared to our our first limit, much more humanoid. Yes. Th this looks like a werewolf that just stopped trying. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he's got, it's almost like uh, goblin-esque in facial features. Very, very large uh, protuberance of a nose, pointed ears. It's got a, yeah, he's got kind of a mullet going on. It's, um, you know he's, what? Yeah, he's business front, part, party main in the back. You know who I'm also realizing now that he kind of looks like? Um, is that Fred, no, Fred Willard. Willard? He looks a little bit like Fred Willard. Okay. Fred I think Willard. I think Graham looks a little bit like Fred Willard. Oh, oh, yeah, from like Best in Show, and uh, yeah, he's a comedic actor. I, I don't know about that. <laughs> I think so. Maybe. I, I don't okay, know. Okay, actually, you know what? I can see it now because yeah, especially the the profile of Fred Willard. The nose is not that significant, but yeah, like the jawline. It's the there's it's also absolutely like, the jawline and the hair. There's like a Eugene Levy sort of. Thing to him as well, but like mid two thousands Eugene Levy before he got sexy in uh, Schitt's Creek. Eugene Levy was always sexy. What are you talking about? <laughs> he was actively trying not to be in like American Pie when he was, you know, had like fake teeth and big, you know the fake glasses and whatever else. And he, you know, yeah, this is it's kind of yeah okay. He's kind of got like the backwards legs. It's kind of yeah. uh, werewolf vibes from, and then a big old belly. Big old belly that they they but they need their big pot belly because it it basically ferments the grass for them. Yeah, yeah, they, they do. They they need that. Yeah, and they, then he's got just like he charcoalish needs skin. it with his long feet. Yes. Five hundred thousand years hence, Graham no longer exists, but his progeny have continued to evolve. They no longer solely live off the tall grasses of the plain, so their scissor-like the scissor-like features of their hand have grown to be more specialized, and now mm. their pinky finger is long and pointed, uh, like a knife, which is good mm -hmm. for digging, fighting, and poking. Okay. Okay. Yeah. They've also developed drastic sexual dimorphism, and the female of the species stays to take care of what is known as the brood mother, and they are now known as socials. And I will send you. So I'm gonna I, again. This is two. I'm actually gonna send you three. So here is um, what the social looks like now. You can see that his body has maintained a lot of the same features, but his arms are really long now, and his hand has the 
long pinky for Nifen. Mm-hmm. Got knife pinky. And this is the brood mother. I I also notice in both of these, I don't know if Dougal was just like, I'm not gonna draw dicks on these things. But there's no there genitalia no on any. Yeah. There are no dicks. Yeah. No, I noticed that as well, Derek. Don't worry. I also noticed that. <laughs> oh, tr- trust. Yeah. Uh, okay. Where yeah, are the dicks, so. Dougal? All <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. So, yeah, there's a single birth giver to their societies. Yes, they appears, have a brood mother who. Brood mother. I just didn't want to use that term, but yeah, that's the term they use. That's yeah. good for them. Yeah. Surrounded by, surrounded by kids. Very. Uh, this looks angry. Yeah, they're. I, he's pointing at something. I don't know what. Yeah, with his knife pinky. <laughs> his knife. Is, how you would have to point at everything too? You just right over uh, there, right over there. So there, you can see the brood mother is a, a lot larger than non-breeding females of the species, mm-hmm. and the females of the species are very small. They have the pot bellies. They have boobies for some reason. I don't understand why they would have boobies if they're not brood mothers. Well, they'd still be mammalian. Yeah, but they're not. But they're not milking. Why would they have such like jiggly boobies? Maybe it's structured like the elephant seal, mm. where all males have the potential to be the. Because in elephant seal, elephant seal structure, there is one male which is able to breed with all of the females, and that male becomes significantly larger and becomes the quote unquote alpha of the uh, the elephant seal community. So maybe it is in the sense that all females have the potential to be the brood mother. That makes sense. So then if something were to happen to the brood mother, one of the females would then begin to grow and perhaps her sexual organs would pop out. They were like in a secret compartment. <laughs> Their utility belt. <laughs> we were doing so well. We were doing so well to keep it to like actual biology there. Until secret genital compartment. <laughs> You're being graded on this. <laughs> not, on, not on this portion, I hope. Oh, oh, oh no. <laughs> Here we can get really This is wild. the fun portion. <laughs> <laughs> okay, two million years hence. The plane dwellers, known as socials, are now known as hivers. I don't know what has happened. So much has happened, apparently. Dougal Dixon apparently loves telepathic communication, and he loves <laughs> symbiotic relationships. So the socials have become the hivers, and they have formed a symbiotic relationship with these like creepy little babies known as seekers. Mm, I... <laughs> okay, yep. The seekers don't have eyes or noses, or hands, or or legs. And the reason they don't is because they have been carried by the hivers for so long, they just stopped developing them. So they're it, basically the hivers carry potatoes with mouths that they feed and protect. And they How communi- do they seek? They communicate. I don't know. I don't know what they seek. They communicate okay. telepathically with the hivers and tell them where to go. The hivers have lost their pot belly. Uh-huh. Because they don't eat grass any longer. Because at this point in two million years, post uh, the the last of the humans as we know them, the grasslands have completely died out, continuing to be eroded away by the incredibly hot temperatures that have 
subsisted mm. through this time. Um, they do still have their long legs, but they're actually smaller now. They do also still have their knife fingers, which is really cool. So here is the final photo of what was once Graham and is now a Are hybrid. they predatory now is it since the grasslands are? Because it sounds like... Okay. Yeah, there's that little potato baby. They got a potato baby. Yeah. Huh. It has a it has he's a haircut. Got, he's got little arms, I guess. He has one little arm. Yeah. Yeah, that's very Master Blaster. What they have mustaches? The, not the potato babies, but the uh, they have the mustaches to protect them because they now live in uh, arid desert environments. So they have the mustaches mm-hmm. to protect their nostrils. They look like they look like a <laughs> mid nineties dad from Chicago. Yeah, they do. <laughs> Now, I'm, I'm telling you right now, send your transmissions out of lock, and the, the only way you're going to get that back in, they just, yeah, all right, but I gave you a chance. You pop out of the way. I'm going to pop under the hood for you there. Yep. Yes. Uh, yeah, holding that potato baby with their massive knife fingers. Very, okay, the stance is very wolf-like. They have like the, upper, almost like German Shepherd jackal-like ears, mm-hmm. the yeah pointed ears to listen out for stuff. Stick up those, uh, those, the nose doesn't help the mustache. I think that's part of it, too. Is it looks like he's smelling for sausages. It looks it looks like he is he's caught the scent of bacon. I don't and, even uh, actually know that they would have noses that look like this because this type of like long nose is typical mm-hmm. for colder environments where you have to warm up the air mm-hmm. before it like gives you a brain freeze. And that's science. <laughs> We're nothing if not scientific here. <laughs> But I mean that is true. In colder environments, the noses tend to be like longer because they need to mm-hmm. warm up the air. Whereas in a drier environment, you would have a shorter nose because you don't have to warm up the air. You're able to just breathe it in. So I don't know why they would yeah, have such the a traditional Germanic nose. The exactly. Nose. Yeah, I don't know why they would have such a long nose if they now live in the desert. Yeah, I don't know. I guess this okay. is just why we're more advanced thinkers than Dougal Dixon. Product of his time. Where are their dicks? Why do their noses look like that? <laughs> These are the real questions. <laughs> where are their dicks, Dougal? Um, gosh, my professor's learning so much about the type of things that I talk about. I am interested in exploring the way that we make connections with um, monsters mm-hmm. because that is that is a very interesting uh, school of scholarly thought now. Like, why are people attracted to villains? Why are villains mm-hmm. hot? Why do women love Venom? And I'm <laughs> interested in answering those questions. Venom was supposed to bomb. Venom was not supposed to be a good movie. Who showed up? The girls and the gays. They loved Venom. Why? Because we've basically been identifying with weird villains our entire lives because they keep queer baiting all of the villains. So now they're hot and they're tragic and we love it. And now we have a whole generation of people who want to fuck monsters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how many people out there want Mothman? Just ask yourself. Just ask yourself. Who created that statue of Mothman with that butt? Besides a pervert who wants to have Those sex with Mothman. Those chrome clappable cakes. There's no yes. reason his butt needed to look like that, except for the fact that <laughs> the sculptor wanted it to. <laughs> but no, you're absolutely right. Uh, villains are hot. I absolutely love ve- Venom. I have several Venom comics, and 
things, venom things behind me. Venom things. Venom. Like figures, like figures, and posters, not anything figures. weird. No one can see what's behind you, so when you just say things, it's weird. Oh, yeah. No, that's fair. Yeah, I was, I was getting away from saying toys, and I'm also realizing that's probably not the best word either. Action figures, because I'm a normal nerd. Not really. All right. Aquamorph and Graham. <laughs> Let's get to Singleton number three. Yeah, Bachelor number three, 500 years hence. Nut, the engineered tundra dweller. I'm sorry, Nut. His name is Nut. I didn't choose yep. that name. I know you didn't. Yep. Now, I think it's a little unfair because the first image we have of Nut is him being beaten up on. And I don't think that's oh, no. really fair to him. So I think no. he I think he's a lot more capable than we're giving credit. But for some reason, the image that Dixon chose to illustrate to show us what this tundra dweller looked like was him being beat up on by a woodland dweller. Oh, no. That's very sad. It reads, Mosses, heathers, coarse grasses, very meager fare. Yet such a diet used to support very large animals like reindeer, muskox, and mammoth. So there is no reason to suppose that a suitably engineered human could not submit... Sub My autocorrect put it to submit, but I think it's subsist on such a diet. Mm. He looks down at the coarse little plants at his feet. They look like the same as those he has been eating all his life. With the ice hook developed from the nail on his big toe, he scraps up a patch of moss. Then he goes down onto his furry knees and scoops it up with spade-like hands. Yes, it tastes just the same. He will survive here. I just went, in my head it was Ira Glass. Here's some nut. He's being attacked by a, he's just being clowned on by a woodland dweller. I have seen this before <laughs> and I don't know where. Okay. I think this huh. image actually was a meme for a while. Um, I think it was. Yeah. 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 So it's kind of like Bigfoot versus Yeti mm -hmm. is kind of what I'm getting from yes. it. Yes. So the uh, woodland actually, dwellers are quite small. Um, they've obviously been engineered to live in woodlands. And they're, they're kind of mm -hmm. like monkey-like. They climb trees. They have graspy hands and feet with the uh, prehensile big toe to help them like grip logs and stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, it basically just looks like a monkey man. Yeah, reddish brown, got claws. Yeah. And then the nut is a um, very floofy, like sheep-like yeti man yes. sort of yep. thing. With, yes. Yeah. Very big teeth uh, and a very flat nose. Uh, and then in the background, uh, that ass. Um, Again, his yeah. nose doesn't make sense because if he lives in the cold, he would have a narrow, long nose. It would be the reverse. It for, would be the reverse. Climate. So yeah, yeah. Uh, and actually, not to lose my my uh, cryptid authority card here. Um, actually, uh, Yeti are traditionally depicted much as the woodland dweller with reddish brown fur, as opposed to white fur. White fur was only really instituted through pop culture, so most Yeti are actually not seen as white. So interesting. Putting that out there. Yeah. Fun yeah. fact. Fun fact. Monster crash. <laughs> Okay, uh, let's see how Nut evolves because this is this is sad. I don't like. I don't want yeah, to it kind of sucks that the, at, for the other ones we get this like glorious photo of them in their first iteration, and it's like lovely, and they're on their own and they're striding forward. And for some reason, for Nut, we just get a 
just one of them being just eaten by a monkey. <laughs> As the other ones are walking away, like, um, help, guys. Ten, like, no, fuck you, nut. 10,000 years hence, the tundra dwellers here being attacked have become symbiont carriers to the woodland dwellers here attacking. Oh, enemies to friends. I know, it's beautiful. Love that trope. It, it's beautiful. It is. So the woodland dwellers, which are swift and capable as hunters, feed the pair, and the tundra dweller, who's large and shaggy, provides protection from the element and excellent hugs. Oh. Here's, that's the evolutionary necessity we need, are hugs. Yeah, here they are. Oh, all the good hugs. Yeah. The best hugs. Yeah, so he's carrying... And the woodland dwellers you can see now is starting to look a lot more human than monkey. Like that looks like a wizened old man. And it does. I wonder what the size reference is. The so the woodland dwellers are quite small. I believe they're like three to four feet. Okay, so then the the Arctic individuals would be probably more traditional human size. Yeah, they're not Five they're not six, as yeah. giant as kind of their big form would suggest. Okay, okay, yeah, I like that. He's just holding one as it's pointing, like go over there. There's where food is. Yeah, he's holding them like on his hip, the way that you hold a child. Yeah, this again. This is very much uh, potato baby. This is very yeah. master blaster yes. kind of symbiotic relationship. And they, of course, uh, communicate telepathically. Of course. Um, <laughs> you didn't even need to say that. I read your mind. <laughs> so 200 million years hence. I can't explain how this happened. The tundra dwellers have fallen victim to parasites. And they are no oh. longer in a symbiotic relationship with the woodland dwellers. In fact, they are now victim to the hosts, which are island dwellers. So island dwellers were, uh, I believe, a subsection of woodland dwellers who went to go live on an island, and then the rising water made them come back to the mainland, and so they're very tiny. And mm. the tundra dweller has gotten a lot bigger because the ice caps in the North Pole have melted. So he is now mm -hmm. living in a much more arid environment and he's gotten very large. He's lost his shaggy white coat. He has more coarse skin, um, kind of like a reptile. And uh, the island dwellers, which are now the, the parasites, cling to the skin of the once great tundra beasts. The parasites are hive mind. And they obviously communicate telepathically. I don't need to say that. Mm -hmm, yeah, and they have course, one yeah. <laughs> leader whose demands they follow. They have long arms uh -huh. that go nearly to their knees with hook-like fingers that allow them to latch onto their host's skin. They have a flat face that has bloodletting teeth because they obviously uh -huh. suck blood. They're super gross. I'm so sorry for what you're about to see. It's kind of grody. <laughs> it feels like Dougal Dixon just really went, hey, fuck these guys. I'm also sending you a more detailed sketch of what the the parasite looks like. Okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Let me see if I can try. So, yeah, reptile-like skin or even, like, elephantine. Yeah, elephant might to... be better. I think it's probably leathery. Yeah, to try to, to trap in water in an arid environment. I get where they're going with that. The human-like face. I mean, that is the... That's the uncanny valley of all of this is throughout all of this. They're maintaining a very odd human-like face yeah. with, like, 
the teeth are what throw it off. It's because it's always like just. It has those like it has teeth. that like a uh, what's that game? Um, Overwatch, uh, where they have the like Mentos teeth. That's what his teeth mm. look like. They look like individual Mentos. All separate, yeah. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, underneath um, its shoulder boob, it appears, is a black oh, shadow that's a fatty, spider demon That's monkey. a fatty lump, much like a camel would have, so it can store water. Uh, I see it has some along the, the back, too. Oh, and there's one on the back, too. So it's got a number of these little entities uh, who all have... Yeah, bloodletting teeth, as as you described, and uh, little 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 heads, mm-hmm. little uh, yep, little spider monkeys. All right, I feel bad for the tundra dwellers. They are not getting. I know a good deal they didn't. They really haven't. We haven't seen them majestic on their own for a while. Mm-mm. Okay, well, all right. I only have one version of Bachelor Number Four. And it is 1,000 years hence. Um, I don't think that they, I don't think that he continued much longer. Um, I, so, gosh, there's a lot to unpack with this one. Uh, (laughs) So as the last of the humans, as we recognize them, were dwindling away in labs, engineering the future generation of survivors, their bodies became malnourished and weak from a lack of use. Their arms lost muscle, their skin became thin. So some humans were turned into what is known as ticks, writhing masses of grown limbs on a network of muscle and vein and membrane. Mm -hmm. (laughs) These synthetically grown limbs are to be used as a replacement for others or to enhance the skills of the tick as they brave the world to gather food and resources. Now, from my reading... It seems that the ticks were controlled by weather weather patterns, and as the yeah. weather became more unstable, um, they were unable to find their way back home after gathering food or resources, and so I think they may have all just died off. But anyways, here he is. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> here he is, the tick, in, many, in two forms. They don't all look the same. They look different. Oh, God. Uh, okay. Yep, got those bonus limbs. Uh, some clearly more in use than others. It's like a mushroom person. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like myconid in in structure with like veins and oh, it's so lumpy. It's like a human tumor. It's a it's it's a, it's a tumor. Yeah, yeah. Tumor. I mean, yes, it is like a human tumor. Um, yeah. They and the other one's got like four feet and he's walking like horizontal, <laughs> like he's on a couch. With and one his, arm just sticking way up for a high five. And Somebody his face is like facing boy. the sky. Like he's not even looking down at the ground where he's walking. No. And the the, the weird thing about these, uh, in addition to the many other weird things, again, the, the five-digit yeah, structure. Yeah, can you name one weird thing about these things? The weird thing about this is that their faces are the most human of all. <laughs> That's because they are hu- they're They are what we are. They are us. They are, they are a dude surrounded by like tumor limbs and they're just living their best life. I mean, that. I mean, that is like a Channing Tatum surrounded by tumors. The startling thing about this is that, this, I mean, Dixon wrote this. I tried to get a copy of this book. It's impossible. 
Uh, it is out of print, which I'm sure makes sense to anyone who's <laughs> looked at any of these photos. I, Our poor librarian, I sent her a request for it, and she was able to get me Afterman, and then I had to explain to her, like, no, what I need is so much more fucked up than this. <laughs> I need this, but worse. <laughs> And she she tried so hard to find it for me, and um, it didn't get here in time. So unfortunately, oh. I don't I don't have a copy that I can Darn. that I can touch and feel oh, um, to absorb the curse from those pages. <laughs> but when he wrote this, he had no he had no way of knowing that we have uh, we have gotten to some parts of this technology where we're like now growing organs and ears and yeah. livers on mice <laughs> mice exactly yeah or i mean hell even 3d printing them or whatever else yeah the the level of technology and and genetic uh structure absolutely to your point yeah and even this i mean you can see in the background of these guys that there are like human structures there's like a satellite dish in the background and maybe like an oil derrick yeah. there's oh it's, it's okay the unsettling thing of the open spots because I think that actually might be the closest thing to a dick on the on the front one is at the bottom there is like there is a hole you have to assume something comes out I, yeah I don't know what that is either I don't know I, I think that I think that's the closest thing we're gonna get we, we did it <laughs> we found the dicks we found dick. it <laughs> <laughs> okay and what are these called these are called the ticks these are ticks the ticks that's right with no that's K right. how could no, oh, just like a tic tac, like T I T. Yeah. Yes, like a like a tic tac made of flesh, like a meaty tic tac. Mm, minty mm. fresh. Oh no. Uh, well, you know, the book actually ends on a rather depressing note. Does it now? <laughs> So while some humans stayed behind to try and genetically engineer humans that could survive on a rapidly changing and dying planet, some left Earth. And when they left Earth, they colonized worlds, um, they formulated new civilizations, and inevitably some of those new civilizations reached a point where they wanted to travel the stars and they actually returned to Earth. However, they returned as unrecognizable creatures encountering unrecognizable creatures and dixon writes the oh. earth's long period of innocence is over um <laughs> i don't know that we could describe anything that's happened so far as innocent but over the following centuries these once earthlings destroy the new life that has flourished over millions of years leaving behind the husk of a once thriving planet what a massive bummer. I know. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Th thanks, Dougal. I guess. <laughs> Jesus. It took us five million I, I years just, to finally do it, but we did it. We destroyed just Earth. Just a Scotsman. He's like, I made all of this, and I'm going to thick and destroy it. Just... <laughs> It literally created all of these things just for at the end of his book. He he's he made this shit up. He could have just gone and they lived happily ever after and evolved into oblivion until the eventual you know uh, explosion of the sun or whatever else. But he's like, no, no, no. These other things I made came and they all just fucking killed each other. Anyway, good night. 
You're right. Yeah. So um, those are your four bachelors for this mm-hmm. special episode of Monster Crush. Very special. Um, hey, everybody. Uh, I think according to my clock, we're about two, two ten, two twelve right now. So uh, you made it. We got there. We're going to do this. Okay. Four singletons. Um, hey, Aquamorph. Uh, Graham, the, um, the, the grassland knife hand individual. Uh, Nut, the uh, very unfortunate um, uh, elephant yeti. And the tick. Okay. Um, okay. Well, I think I think we're gonna have to just narrow this down as as we typically do. <laughs> I'm going to negate the tick okay. just for. The, the, yeah. The, no, the I think he like, understands. I think it's 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 not even okay. It's not that I find the tick to be unsettling. I do. It's not about that. It's, not about it's that. the lack of longevity to the tick. Right. That they just like. And following weather patterns? Come on, but they use telepathy like everybody else. Yeah, okay, fair. Everybody else is doing it. All the cool kids are doing it. Yeah. Yeah, the the tick just didn't have... There's not the the longevity to the relationship that I would really hope for in that case. Uh, As much as I do appreciate the potential of the only dicks in dick. um, Yeah, just, yeah, go and pass on that one. Um, I'm also going to pass on the aquamorph. Interesting. Okay. But he I, came on yeah. land. He would be able to come and stay the night at your place, like once or twice he a could, week. Ab- absolutely covered in sand and every- tracking in sand everywhere, either in like the streamlined <laughs> suit or the fucking bubble. The problem with the the aquamorph is I know they aren't sad, but there is a part of me as the the level of evolution of humanity that I am at, where I definitely take facial cues, and that guy looks like a fucking the depressed grimace all the time. He does. Yeah, it is like it is an upside down you. Just it is it is a half circle of a mouth, just constantly. Going, he looks like Jabba the Hutt. It kind of does, and there's nothing wrong with Jabba. I mean, there's certain people out there who have that sort of affinity. Nothing against you, but. Uh, yeah, just no, not a thing for... I guess there's also the mermaid aspect of the manatee thing. Just, nah, nah, not doing it for me. And there is the water thing, too. It's like, uh, it's either your place or my place, and one of us is going to need a suit. Yeah. It's just one more thing. Okay. Graham, I do appreciate Graham. I, um, I appreciate Graham's evolution. I appreciate Graham's mustache. Uh, I appreciate... Uh, I... I I appreciate the way that, that Graham has knife hands. That is fun. <laughs> well, I knife, worry about the whole I guess bro- knife finger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Knife finger. Yeah. Knife finger. I missed that Golden Bond. Or that uh, James Bond. Golden Bond. <laughs> uh, I missed that James Bond. Uh, um, the broodmother is a bit... Uh, you know what? I'm not going to shame that because that's the way their structure works. And it works for them. That's fine. That's just how their bodies work. That's what their bodies need. It is. It is. Nut. Like, part of me just feels bad. Like, you know, such a hard knock life. I just, man, just so rough from from beginning to end. Very rough until you're just like, you're always bringing other folks along. It's like, I just want it to be us. And you've got all these parasites you're bringing with you. And they've got their own opinions and they're like biting me now. And I don't have my camel-like sex to sustain me. Uh, Nut? Is it? I... Yeah, I'm sorry, Nut. You you seem you seem bound for oblivion. So all right, I'm gonna I'm gonna pass on that. I'm gonna go with and I mean 
surprising no one, uh, the closest thing to a goddamn werewolf in this. I'm going to go with Graham. Graham, the Plains Dweller. Well, the Plains Dweller, the Grassland Individual, the Socials, the hive, Hivers. Yeah. Hivers, yeah. Congratulations, Derek. You have powered through the abject and you have made kin with Graham, the Plains Dweller. <laughs> I found it and I love them all. I have, I have forced myself into this. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, for listening to um, our weirdest episode yet. And Mm -hmm. thank you slash sorry to the person who had to listen to every single part of it. (laughs) Thank you, uh, Heavenly's Professor. Uh, Give her at least a passing grade. She put a lot of work into this very clearly. (laughs) I I had a lot of fun. I learned stuff. I have I have a lot of sources to thank, so I just want to thank them right now before we forget. Yeah, go for I it. I want to thank the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. <laughs> Sorry, I just know I just Why? I don't know. I just never thought in my life I'd be thinking the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame. But the sources okay. I used for this episode was the Colorado Sports Hall of Fame, the UC Santa Cruz's staff website, the book How Like a Leaf, an interview with Donna Haraway by Theresa Goodeve. The Cyborg Manifesto by Donna Haraway, Staying with the Trouble by Donna Haraway, the comic Bee Orchid by XKCD, a webcomic, Critical Theory, mm-hmm. The Key Concepts by Dino Franco Fulga, Powers of Horror, an Essay of Objection by Julia Kristeva, and of course, After Man by Dougal Dixon. Of course. <sighs> Wonderful sources. While we are in a thanking mood, I also do want to extend a thank you to our super producer, Richard, who will be doing quite a lot of work on this <laughs> one. We appreciate you so very much, Richard. Uh, I also want to thank Nick Lambert, our musician who did our intro and outro music. Uh, you can find his Instagram handle in our show notes. I also want to thank our network, the Nerdsmith Network, our Daddy Network. They are practically teeming with other great shows, much of them TTRPG related, but a lot of them have monsters in them, so if you appreciate monsters, you might want to check those out too. Um, definitely, if you enjoyed this, tweet at us, at Monster Crushing on Twitter. Let us know if you found your Monster Crush. Let us know what you'd like to see in the future. Let us know you just appreciate us. Um, and yeah, any questions, thoughts, any of that stuff, that is the best place to get at us. Uh, we definitely appreciate any rating reviews subscribe all that kind of stuff all the good stuff for podcasts if you do leave a review we do read it on the podcast it's been a while since we've had one so you could be next and with all of that said thank you so much for everybody we powered through we did it we did it stay monster smooching as praxis (laughs) thank you everybody bye